Hello, FAC family. Pastor Mike here with you once again. Um, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10? I invite you to meet me in verse 34. Uh, once again, that's Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 34. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And where we left off in verse 33 was actually quite a little bit of a cliffhanger. If you remember from last week, there were a number of times that I referred to God as kind of setting up uh, pieces for what was coming next. It's like God is at a chessboard and he's uh, orchestrating it in such a way uh, that would allow him to make his next move. Uh, the entire narrative from last week uh, had his fingerprints all over it. If you recall, we began the passage with a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius received a vision uh, of an angel that instructed him to reach out to Peter. And Peter ha- had a vision and even uh, communication with a voice from heaven that prepared him to meet Cornelius. And then subsequently, Peter received further instructions straight from the Holy Spirit himself when uh, Cornelius' men uh, came to him, and, and the Holy Spirit told Peter to go with those men. Uh, last week, we saw that God is putting the pieces in place. He's directing traffic to get Peter in the same room as these Gentiles from Caesarea. And the implementation of God's plan in this all revolves around one thing. It all revolves around this message that Peter has. This is God's end goal for Cornelius and his friends and his family uh, these Gentiles, that they would hear this message that has been entrusted to Peter. Way back in verse 22, if you were to look at that verse, we see that Cornelius sends for Peter explicitly uh, to, to hear this message for the explicit purpose of hearing what Peter has to say. Cornelius's request Uh, for Peter's presence is not based on the fact that Peter has done miracles. It's not based on the fact that he's a famous preacher. It's not based on the fact uh, that he's a talented communicator. No, Cornelius requests Peter's presence specifically because Peter has a message from God. Uh, Now, All the pieces are in place. It it took divine intervention to get to this point, right? But we see that that they're all in the same room, Peter and Cornelius and Cornelius' friends and family. And the the, the last verse we read uh, last week was verse 33 when Cornelius says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This story that we looked at last week um, took four days, right? The, the last four days of the story have led up to this moment. And if this was a TV show, this is the point last week where the screen would fade to black and the words would scrawl across the screen to be continued. And so let's start in verse 34 and see what is this message that that God has given to Peter and that God has worked so hard to orchestrate for Cornelius and these other people to hear. It's verses 34 through 43. Would you read along with me as I read it out loud? It says this. So Peter opened his mouth 
and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we know that you are gracious to us and patient with us in our misunderstanding. So I pray that our time together right now would bring clarity through your word. As we discover your heartbeat, would your spirit show us where we are ignorant and help us understand? By Jesus' authority, we pray all of these things to you. Amen. When I was in eighth grade, I tried out for my middle school's baseball team. My entire life, I played in the local rec league, but uh, this was different. This was my first chance to play for an actual school team. And this was actually the first time that I had to try out for something. In the rec league, they, uh, if you have a pulse, they would put you on a team. You, you, you made the team in the rec league. They'd find a place for you somewhere. But the school team, no, you had to be good enough to make the school team. And this was such a big my, uh, a big deal in my mind because uh, to, to me this was, I considered this as the first big step towards my career in the majors, right? I can remember coming into the tryout feeling uh, very, very prepared and even leaving the tryout feeling that I had done very well. During the day, I compared myself to other classmates. As I saw other players, I remember stacking myself up against them, thinking, well, I'm better than that kid at uh, hitting, and I'm certainly better at that guy than f- at fielding, and so certainly I'm going to make the cut. I even had an in with the coach because he was my seventh grade math teacher. He was one of my favorite teachers, and we had a very good relationship. And so everything was going in my favor. Even the days following the tryout, I couldn't help but think of my performance. And I was just hoping, just wishing that I was good enough to make the team. Finally, about a week later, the team was posted on the bulletin board outside of the gym, and I rushed to check it first thing in the morning before school started. And as I read down the list of names on the roster, my name was nowhere 
to be found. The first thought that came into my mind was that this has got to be some kind of a mistake. And so I, I read the list again, and still, no name. And then I uh, thought, well, perhaps I'm reading the wrong list. I, I was desperate uh, to see my name listed, and it wasn't there. And so I, I just started looking at all the pieces of paper that were posted on the bulletin board, thinking uh, that the roster was somehow posted uh, somewhere else. Uh, but my name, once again, was nowhere to be found on that bulletin board. I was heartbroken because for the first time, I realized that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I didn't make the cut. Some of us in life go about perhaps believing that there is some kind of moral cosmic being out there, that that God is real and that heaven is real and and that God brings uh, certain people into heaven based on how good they are, right? And uh, there's others that he turns away. But we have no real understanding of what is considered good enough in God's eyes, If you have any doubt in your mind what is acceptable to God, if you have any doubt in your mind about what you need to do to make the cut, so to speak, to to have your name written on that list, then this message that we just read from Peter is not only for Cornelius and his friends and his families, but it's also a message for you. I want to look at it together. We'll start in the first two verses. These first two verses are extremely important in our passage as we understand how God relates to us and how he receives us and how he accepts us. For starters, Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Or in other words, God shows no favoritism. Let's start there because this is very good news for us, especially if we're not Jewish. What Peter says here is really just a rehash of what we discovered last week. Peter is a Jewish man under Jewish law, and under normal circumstances, he would not be associating with the Gentiles like he's doing here. He would not be associating with Cornelius and his friends and his family because they weren't Jewish. But God is revealing to Peter that the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people are actually now welcomed into this new family that God is creating. And so right away in this first verse of our passage, Peter is setting up the Gentiles for his message because God doesn't play favorites. Peter is saying, hey guys, this message is not just for us Jewish people, but this message is also for you. It's not inclusive to only Jewish people, as some might have originally thought. No, this message is for you, because God doesn't judge you based on your nationality. Now, the idea of God showing no partiality should cause our ears to perk up right now in this moment because in our current context, we have a community of black Americans who are crying out in despair 
that our country has and does show partiality, that they have been treated unfairly. I have heard the horror stories from my friends who are treated differently in public because of the color of their skin, and it's sickening. Nobody wants that. So this is great news, that in God's kingdom, in God's country, he shows no partiality. Really, this verse is the great equalizer. It puts everybody on the same playing field. Peter is saying, God doesn't pick you or accept you based on your race or based on your national, uh, national origin, your nationality. Now, it would be easy to rip this verse out of context and, and, and say, well, you see, God accepts everyone. He shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what you do or it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. Nothing matters because in the end, God shows no partiality and will accept you based on who you are. He will accept everyone from every nation. That is a terrible misrepresentation of God's word and even lends itself to the false belief that that all roads lead to heaven. We have to understand that when it says that God shows no partiality, that is not a comment on who will be received by God, but rather it's a comment on who is eligible to be received by God. It's saying that everybody is eligible to be accepted by God. When you go in for an interview, uh, or get hired for a job, you'll most likely receive a document entitled the non-discrimination disclosure or a non-discrimination clause, which says something to the effect that uh, this employer is an equal opportunity employer and does not discriminate on the basis of race or national origin or gender or marital status. We have laws protecting candidates from employers who may discriminate, uh, discriminate against them. It, employers cannot reject a candidate because of their race, because of their national origin. However, just because they don't hire based on gender, race, or age doesn't mean that you're going to get the job. Because at the end of the day, to be hired, there is still a skill set that you have to have. You still need to meet qualification. The, the clause simply means that you're eligible, and you're eligible as you are. The first verse teaches that what qualifies you or disqualifies you from being accepted by God is not on the basis of your culture or nationality or social status or economic status because God shows no partiality. We're all on even ground. However, God does have a standard. It's not as if you can go off doing whatever you'd like and living the way you'd like or believing whatever you'd like and still be acceptable to God. And so if it's not nationality, what is the basis of God's acceptance? What is the standard? By what standard does God receive 
people. Peter answers that in the very next verse. In in verse 35, take a look. Uh, He immediately puts a qualifier uh, on this. Uh, he, He says, yes, you aren't rejected based on your nation, Uh, You aren't accepted based on your nation, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Two things in this verse that determine if you are accepted by God. The first is if you fear him, or essentially if you have that reverent respect for for him, a submission to him, right? Uh, is, Is the first one. And the second one is that you have done what is right. Those are the ones, when all is said and done, who will be accepted by God, the ones who fear him and the ones who do right. Or in other words, the ones who are righteous. When all of this is is done and over, this is the basis that God will judge you on if you fear God and if you are righteous. Now, if we were to call it quits right there for the day and close our Bibles, we would be left with a lot of ambiguity. It's very unclear to this point who God accepts. Yes, he accepts the righteous. But in a world where there is much debate on morality, much debate on what is right and what is wrong, we are forced to ask the question here, how good is good enough? With this, you may start looking like I did when I went out for the eighth grade baseball team. I was at the top of my game, and as I left the tryout, I felt like I had given it my all. I did the best I I could, stacking up uh, myself against the rest. I thought for sure that I was good enough. I was completely convinced that I had done enough to earn my name on that list. Some of us live hoping, wondering, have I made the cut? Some of us live uh, comparing our goodness to others. How do we stack up? We do that, don't we, right? We, we sit here and say, well, well, I'm not a perfect person, but at least I'm not like so-and-so who verbally abuses their family. I may not be the perfect husband, but at least I don't cheat on my wife like, like he does. At least uh, I don't make unethical business decisions to get ahead in my career like so many in my field of work do. I lead a relatively good life, and when you consider everyone on earth right now, I'm not so bad, right? I'm, I'm no terrorist. I may not be perfect, but maybe I'd be considered righteous in God's eyes. Perhaps. I hope. Several years ago, I was visiting a family, extended family, and I don't even remember the particular conversation or why this was mentioned, but I remember a specific family member making a comment in the conversation that has stuck with me over the years. In a very casual and nonchalant way, she stated, well, I hope when I die, that God will let me into heaven based on how I raised my kids. I didn't say this at the time, but all I could think was, was, really? 
Your hope in life and death is based on how well you think you raised your children. You're banking your eternity on how you raised your kids. How do you know? How could you possibly know that you've done enough? Because how good is good enough? That question should torment you if you're unsure. We're talking about heaven and hell here, and eternity is on the line. Eternal paradise or eternal suffering. And God says he accepts the righteous, which leaves us wondering, have I done enough? If I were to list out all of my good deeds and list out all of my bad deeds, here's to hoping that, that as we kind of put it on the scales of life, that, 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 I, that I managed to pull out the 51%. Here's to hoping that in the scale of life, my good deeds uh, outweigh even just barely my bad deeds. Or, as I mentioned earlier, we somehow think and convince ourselves that God grades on a curve. And, yeah, I've done a lot of bad, but but maybe I've made the cut based on the curve because I'm not as bad as those other people. But the problem with this is that if God is the one determining who's righteous, if he is the one uh, accepting people based on righteousness, we shouldn't look at the definition of righteousness according to the world's standards, but actually according to God's standards. We shouldn't think of righteousness in what is considered good based on what the world says is good, but based on what God says is good. And God in Scripture is very clear who is righteous and who is not. Paul writes about this in Romans 3. Take a look at it as I read it. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then later on, uh, Paul writes, For by uh, works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law came, comes knowledge of sin. And then if you were to keep reading, you'd come to Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This passage is here to show us that no one is righteous. Nobody does good in the eyes of God because righteousness, as defined by God, is perfection. And if you think that's not fair... Let me remind you that God shows no partiality. This not only means that everyone is eligible for salvation, that he shows no partiality, but this also means that everyone will be judged by the same standard. This is consistent with the first part of Peter's speech. You want fair, that's about as fair as you're going to get. Every human being will be judged by the same standard. And you will either live up to God's perfect character 
or you will not. You see, God doesn't grade on a progressive scale. You, you either pass or fail. There is no, uh, oh, this group gets A, this group gets B, C, D, and these are our flunkers over here. No, it's, it's easy. God is saying you either pass or you fail. And if you get one wrong answer, it's a failing grade. You've failed. So it doesn't matter how good you've been. Perhaps you stack up very well among the rest. Perhaps you are the best person to ever walk the earth over all history. But if you have done one wrong thing, if you have made one immoral decision, if you have committed one sin, you fail. You have been disqualified from being accepted by God. This is why Paul writes in Romans that no one is righteous. We're all in the same boat. We all have failed. We all have fallen short. In our story, Cornelius is a good example of this. Because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 10, we read a description of him and, and we read that and say, well, he, Cornelius seems like a pretty good guy. He, he, he is a devout man. He fears God. He donated regularly to the poor. And in fact, he actually prays regularly. By our standard, Cornelius is a good guy. But by God's standard, he still needs to be saved, which is why he needs to hear this message from Peter. And so what? Does this mean that we're hopeless? That we're just kind of stuck, separated from God forever, that He'll never accept us? Not in the least bit. The passage doesn't end on moral ambiguity. No, Peter doesn't leave Cornelius and his friends and his family wondering if they are righteous or not, if they've done enough. Instead, he proceeds to tell them about Jesus. Peter explains that Jesus came to bring peace. That word peace that Peter uses is actually the concept of the Hebrew word for shalom. It means wholeness. It, it means completeness, soundness. It's more than just a lack of conflict. And this peace is actually in reference to our relationship with God. Because when we weren't righteous... We are enemies of God. There was strife. There is what Scripture calls enmity. We were against God, but now Jesus brings peace with God. He brings reconciliation with God. Our relationship with God the Father is made whole, is made sound, is made complete through Jesus. And Peter goes on to explain how basically God the Father accredits Jesus' ministry. Look at that. Jesus uh, was anointed or chosen by God the Father. Uh, Jesus was given the Holy Spirit of power. God the Father was with Jesus. He accompanied Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus when he died on the cross. And ultimately, because of all that Jesus did, because as a man, he was a perfect example of God the Father's requirements. God appoints him as the judge of the living and the dead. 
Jesus' authority is directly tied to his perfection. Don't you see that Jesus is the standard and now has been given authority because of it? He is the only one who is righteous in the eyes of the Father. By the Father's definition, Jesus is the only one he accepts. And we know this because of how he vindicates Jesus. Jesus was put to death. He hung on a cursed tree. The people rejected him. But God the Father vindicates him by bringing him and raising him from the dead. The resurrection validates Jesus' authority to be the judge of the living and the dead. Essentially, God the Father hands over the keys of the kingdom to Jesus and says, I accept you, Jesus, because you are the only righteous one. And based on that, I now give you the authority over all things. Jesus, you decide who I should accept because your righteousness and your righteousness alone is enough. And this is where Peter lands the plane and gives us the best news that we can possibly hear at this moment. Because to this point in the story, in this point in Peter's speech, we're still left to believe that God requires righteousness and no one but Jesus is righteous. So how do we solve this problem? Verse 43 answers the question. Peter says at the very end of his speech to him, meaning Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. If you believe in Jesus and turn to him for the forgiveness of sins, you will be made righteous. Once again, I want to revisit Romans uh, just a chapter later, Romans chapter 4. Paul is writing about Abraham, and he's using him as an illustration to explain basically what we've been talking about, this concept of righteous and unrighteousness. And in Romans 4, Paul explains that Abraham was not justified uh, based on his works. Abraham was not saved because of his works. Instead, Paul writes this in verse 3. Take a look at it. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Essentially, What happens when we believe is that we get to take credit for what Jesus did on our behalf. When we seek forgiveness, when we turn to Jesus, God no longer sees our unrighteousness, but he sees Jesus' perfection. We get to ride the coattails of Jesus' success into eternity. We get to reap the benefit of Jesus' righteousness. When Peter tells these Gentiles that God accepts those who are righteous, essentially he's saying that God accepts Jesus and all of those who attach themselves 
to his righteousness. And so if you were to die today and come face to face with God the Father, and hypothetically God asks you that famous question, why should I let you into heaven? Do you know how you should answer? You would be amazed at how many people don't know how to answer that question. No, if you were to come face to face with God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? The proper response is, God, you shouldn't because I'm unrighteous and you only accept the righteous. But Jesus is righteous and I'm with him. How good is good enough? Jesus is. And how are we made right? How do we meet God's perfect standard of righteousness? By believing and submitting to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have a standard that you have to punish sin in a world where it seems like there are, is so much injustice, Lord. I am thankful that you are a perfect judge and that you have to punish sin, Lord. But I also thank you that while you are a perfect judge, you are also a loving God. And in your love and in your kindness, it has driven us to repentance. We praise you, Lord, that you punish sin, but you have provided us an out through Jesus' perfection, through his death, and through his resurrection, Lord. Would you continue to show us the, the, the amazingness of your glory in all of that? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.